Hey, thank you so much for being here today and for worshiping with us. And if you are in our overflow room or if you're watching us online, thank you for joining us as well. So some of you in here will will remember several years ago when then Vice President Mike Pence uh, was heavily criticized in the media for implementing in his life the Billy Graham rule. Now, if you're not familiar with the Billy Graham rule, um, this was a practice that Billy Graham had during his ministry where he would not be alone with a female who was not his wife or another family member. So he would not ride in the car alone. He would not have meetings alone. He would not eat meals alone with a woman who was not his wife. And he did this for a couple of reasons. One, even though he was a preacher, he was a man and he understood temptation And secondly, he knew that if he was alone with a woman, and even if he did nothing wrong, if she made an accusation, he would have no way of proving that he was innocent in that situation. And so he had a very strict policy that he was never to be alone with another woman who was not his wife. In fact, the story is told that at one point, Reverend Graham was in a hotel, and he walked onto an elevator to go up just a few floors to his hotel room and a woman got onto the elevator with him before the doors could close. He immediately hopped off the elevator and walked back into the lobby because he did not want to even ride that short distance with the lady who was not his wife. So Mike Pence, when he began his political career, implemented this same rule. And the media heavily criticized him, saying this was way too old-fashioned And that this actually inhibited the careers of women working under him because he refused to meet with him alone. In fact, there was one writer for Cosmopolitan Magazine who said this about his policy. Just as disturbing as the wake of women whose careers may have been stymied by Pence's policies is the assumption underlying it that women simply by existing are inherently sexually tempting. And in the workplace, it means we aren't treated as professionals who should be recognized for our work and abilities, but potential personal threats whose ability to work can be constrained for male benefit. And then she went on to write this. The reality is that most people are fully capable of dining with people of the opposite sex or the same sex without cheating on their spouses or partners. Now, I do not know how you objectively quantify that particular statement. How do you test that to know whether or not that is true? I do not know that I agree with the premise of that statement that most people are fully capable of dining with members of the opposite sex. However, here is what I know. You can do a Google search and very quickly come up with a long list of politicians whose marriages have ended because of an affair. In fact, I did it, and I came up with over 100 names just in the last century and just at the federal level and just the ones that are known about. Individuals from different political parties, from different generations, different ages, different stages in life, but all individuals who apparently were unable to dine alone with members of the opposite sex without having an affair. You would recognize those names. John Kennedy, Bill Clinton, Newt Gingrich, Mark Sanford. Again, different political parties, very different views, 
but they fell into an affair because they did not have guardrails up in their lives to protect themselves and to protect their marriage. While I do not know his motivation, my assumption is that Mike Pence, when he began his career, said, I do not want my name to end up on that list. And so I need protection in place to keep me from having my marriage and my family blow up because of a a temptation and a decision that I make in the workplace. Here's why I bring all of this up. We are continuing today our series called Sins and Stones on the Life of King David. David was the second king over Israel. He lived about a thousand years before Christ, about 3,000 years ago. And if you have been here with us for this series, you have seen so far that David's character has been virtually impeccable. He's had a few slip-ups. There have been a few times that he's not fully trusted the Lord, but for the most part, David's moral compass has been extremely strong until today. And if you grew up in church, you're very familiar with the story that we're going to read today. In fact, this is the second most famous episode in David's life. The first is his battle against Goliath. The second is his affair with Bathsheba. And in the first episode, the first story, David exhibited incredible trust in the Lord, incredible faith in God's ability to provide. And in the story we're going to read today, David seems to not even know that God exists. So if you've got a Bible with you, turn to 2 Samuel chapter 11. 2 Samuel chapter 11. And just to set this up, David in chapter 10 tries to make a peace offering with the Ammonites. The Ammonites were a group of people that lived to the south of the Israelites. They were enemies of the Israelites. They were always fighting against the Ammonites. And David at this point was tired. David had spent most of his adult life in battles, and David wanted peace. And so he extends an olive branch to the Ammonites to basically say, let's live in peace for a while. And the Ammonites refuse that offer. And David once again finds himself having to be at war with this other group of people. That's where our story picks up. It is 2 Samuel chapter 11. We will start in verse 1. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, a town in the Ammonite territory. But David remained in Jerusalem. So the author here begins by describing this time period when kings go off to war, when nations would battle one another. They would not do it in the winter winter because the winter was a rainy season, still is a rainy season in that part of the world, too hard to transport arms, to move troops, to go into battle. So they would pause during the winter, and then in the spring they would fight. And the author here says, in the spring, when kings go off to war, kings would go with their troops into battle. They would not be on the front lines, but they would be there at the battle to give orders, to direct troops, to give moral support as being part of this group fighting against their enemy. So in the spring, when kings go off to war, David did not go off to war. 
David remained in Jerusalem. David was tired. David was worn out. David was frustrated. And David decided to remain at the castle. He was in the wrong place. He was not where he was supposed to be. So David being tired, being stressed, being frustrated, and being in the wrong place was a bad combination. Verse 2. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful, and David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. So get the picture. This was not necessarily a sleepless night for David. It says that he was in the bed, but he was just in the bed resting because this was evening. There was still daylight. He's in his bed. He gets up, and he decides to go to the roof of the palace. In that day, roofs were patios. It's where people went to congregate outside. And so he goes to the roof of the palace in the evening just to get some fresh air. Let's give David the benefit of the doubt here. That he did not go to the roof of the palace knowing that he could look down into courtyards and see women bathing. Let's assume that he literally just went to the roof to get some fresh air. However, he gets up there and from that elevated position, he is able to look down into these private courtyards and he sees in one of those courtyards, there is a woman who is bathing. Again, let's assume that he did not go up there looking for a woman bathing in her courtyard. Let's assume that it just happened to him. There's an old saying that goes something like this. You cannot keep a bird from flying over your head, but you can keep it from making a nest in your hair. David here could not help the fact that he saw a woman in her courtyard bathing. He could help the fact that he stood there and stared for a long time. Our family went to the beach this past week, and I learned something while I was at the beach that I did not know before this week. You've heard of all the supply chain issues and all the problems that's caused in a lot of different businesses. Well, I didn't know this, but one of the businesses um, that has been severely affected by supply chain issues um, is the women's bathing suit manufacturers. Did you know that? They are unable to get enough material for bathing suits. And so for each bathing suit that is manufactured, they can only use a minimal amount of material because there's just not enough for all the bathing suits. Did you know that? I found that out this past week. I noticed more men on the beach than I've ever seen before. Most of the time, they're off playing golf, doing other things. For some reason this year, they're like, no, honey, I'm going to the beach with you all day. I'm going to stay on the beach. Well, you can't help it if you just see someone walk past in one of these supply chain issued bathing suits. <laughs> but you can avert your gaze. You can keep from staring. David here doesn't turn around and go back down to the palace. He continues to look, to watch, to stare, and to dream. He sends someone to inquire about her. And the person comes back and says, hey, her name is Bathsheba, and she is the daughter of Eliam and the wife 
of Uriah the Hittite. At this point, warning bells should have been going off. Red lights should have been flashing for David. Hey, David, I know you saw this woman bathing in the courtyard. She is married, David. It doesn't matter. At this point, the bird has made the nest in his hair. And he has already in his mind dreamed of what he would do with this beautiful woman who was bathing. Next verse, verse 6. Verse 4, sorry. Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him and he slept with her. Now she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanness. Then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David saying, I am pregnant. So David sends word to have Bathsheba brought to him. I know we normally say that it takes two to tango. However, in this case, Bathsheba, we cannot put the blame on her. When the king sends for someone, they come. When the king sent for Bathsheba, she came. David has his night of passion. He sends her home and he thinks, well, that's it. It's over. It's done. Whether he knows it was wrong or not or thinks it was wrong or not or just forgets about it, who knows. But he has his night of passion. He's done with the whole thing. He thinks that's it. We're finished with that. And then a few weeks later, a messenger comes to the castle with a note. He opens the note and it says, Dear David, I'm pregnant, Bathsheba. Uh Uh-oh, big problem. Now I've got to fix the situation. Now I can't just say that was a sin and it's over and it's gone and I can move on. Now I've got to figure out how to fix the sin that Bathsheba and I engaged in. Now I've got to figure out how to fix this situation. Verse 6. So David sent this word to Joab. Send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent him to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked him how Joab was, how the soldiers were, and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, Go down to your house and wash your feet. So Uriah left the palace, and a gift from the king was sent after him. But Uriah slept at the entrance to the palace with all of his master's servants and did not go to his house. So David comes up with this brilliant plan to fix the situation. He sends word to Joab, who is the commander in the field at the battlefront against the Ammonites. He sends word, send me home Uriah the Hittite, one of your soldiers. I want to hear about the battle. I want to get the latest news from the battlefront. Joab obeys. He sends Uriah home. David invites him into the castle and says, hey, tell me about Joab. Tell me about the battle. Tell me how the men are doing. Uh Uh-huh. 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 Go home. Go home and be with your wife. In fact, the phrase, wash your feet, is a Hebrew euphemism that means go home and be with your wife. Go home and be with your wife. It is a brilliant plan. He will go home. He'll be with his wife. He'll go back to battle. He'll come back from the war, and voila, there's a child that that is there. And the timing is not exactly right. It seems a a little off, but, you know, who knows? It's my child. This is, you know, the result of what happened when I came home from battle problem solved, everything's fixed, great plan, David, except Uriah wouldn't go home. He sleeps on the porch of the palace. So David has to find out what's wrong. David was told Uriah did not go home. 
So he asked Uriah, haven't you just come from a military campaign? Why didn't you go home? Haven't you been away for a long time? Why didn't you go home to be with your wife? I know that's what you want to do. Why did you sleep on the porch of the palace? Verse 11, Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah are staying in tents and my commander Joab and my Lord's men are camped in the open country. How could I go to my house to eat and drink and make love to my wife? As surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. And so Uriah says, look, my men do not get to go and be with their wives. Joab, my commander, does not get to go and be with his wife. They're, they're at the battlefront. They're in tents. They're out there sleeping um, on the ground. Why should I go home and sleep with my wife in my own bed? Now David's in a bind. What does he do? What does he do with Uriah? It turns out that unlike David, the man actually has scruples. You know, he's got a moral compass. Uh, and he wants to do what is right here. David's got to somehow fix the situation. Plan A doesn't work. So then he goes to plan B. Verse 12. Then David said to him, stay here one more day and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. At David's invitation, he ate and drank with him, and David made him drunk. But in the evening, Uriah went out to sleep on his mat among his master's servants. He did not go home. So plan A, bring him back from battle, send him home, did not work. Plan B, stay one more night, come to dinner here in the castle. Oh, by the way, we've got some of the best wine here in the castle. Here, have a glass. Here, have another glass. What? That one's looking kind of empty. Here, let me refill your glass. And David proceeds to get Uriah drunk, thinking his judgment will be clouded and surely he will go home and be with his wife. Except it turns out that drunk Uriah has more of a moral compass than sober David. And Uriah still will not go home. Oh, no. What do you do? What do you do with a guy who still, even when he's drunk, will not go home and be with his wife? Plan A doesn't work. Plan B does not work. So David has to resort to plan C. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. In it he wrote, put Uriah out in front where the fighting is fiercest. Then withdraw from him so he will be struck down and die. David writes a note, likely on parchment paper. He takes that note. He seals that note with wax, with the king's ring, the insignia of the ring. The note is meant for Joab, yet Uriah is carrying his own death sentence to the commander in the field. Joab gets the note, opens the note, and thinks, what has this man done to anger the king? Verse 16, so while Joab had the city under siege, he put Uriah at a place where he knew the strongest defenders were. And when the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, some of the men in David's army fell. Moreover, Uriah the Hittite died. 
So Joab did just as he was commanded. As they drove the troops back into the city and got close to the walls, he put some of the troops very close on the front lines, very close to the walls, so the archers were able to fire arrows, and they killed several men, including Uriah the Hittite. Verse 18. Joab sent David a full account of the battle. He instructed the messenger, When you have finished giving the king this account of the battle, the king's anger may flare up, and he may ask you, Why did you get so close to the city to fight? Didn't you know they would shoot arrows from the wall? Joab is afraid that the king will become angry because they lost several men in battle. Joab continues and says, Who killed Abimelech, son of Jerobesheth? Didn't a woman drop an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died in Thebes? Why did you get so close to the wall? If he asks you this, then say to him, Moreover, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. So Joab references the story from Judges 9 where an Israelite leader is leading troops. They're in this battle. They, they get close to a city wall, and a woman drops a rock, a large stone from the wall, and it hits Abimelech, and eventually he dies from that. And so Joab says if he brings all of that up like, hey, every commander knows you do not get close to the city wall. Why did you get close to the city wall? All you have to do to calm him down is to say, oh, yeah, and Uriah the Hittite died. Verse 22. The messenger set out, and when he arrived, he told David everything Joab had sent him to say. The messenger said to David, The men overpowered us and came out against us in the open, but we drove them back to the entrance of the city gate. Then the archers shot arrows at your servants from the wall, and some of the king's men died. Moreover, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. Then verse 25. David told the messenger, say this to Joab, don't let this upset you. The sword devours one as well as another. Press the attack against the city and destroy it. Say this to encourage Joab. So this messenger comes and says, we got too close to the city wall and a number of men fell dead, including Uriah the Hittite. And David's response was, Oh, well, stuff happens. Life happens. You go into battle, men die. The sword will kill one just like another. Oh, well, tell Joab, it's okay. There are men who will not come home from the battlefield. There are husbands who will not come home to their wives. There are fathers who will not return home to their children. There are sons who will not return home to their moms and their dads. And you tell Joab, oh, well, stuff happens. It's life. David at this point is so clouded by his sin. His judgment is so clouded by his sin that he hears the news of these men who died because of the order of David. And David's response is, eh, it's life. That's what sin will do to us. It will cloud our judgment in a way where we don't even care about something as tragic as this. And David says, tell Joab, it's okay. Shouldn't bother him. Doesn't bother me. Uriah is dead. These other men are dead. It's just part of life. Then here's how the chapter ends. When Uriah's 
wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. After the time of mourning was over, David had her brought to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. So David here gets to the end of it, and he thinks, okay, problem is solved. Uriah is dead. Bathsheba goes through her time of mourning. Then she comes to the castle. David takes her as his wife. This child will be born as the child of Bathsheba and and David. Timing's off, but it's all going to be legitimate. And David thinks, okay, finally, I've covered my sin. Everything is fine. But notice the last sentence. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. David thought he got away with one. But what David had done displeased the Lord. David's sin here is a pattern that we see throughout the Bible and we see in our lives as well. In fact, this this was the pattern of the very first sin. When Eve was tempted by the fruit of the tree, notice what Genesis tells us. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. That is the pattern of sin. See it, you desire it, and you take it. And your sin might not rise to the level of adultery and murder, but all of us in this room understand that's exactly how temptation and sin work. We see it. We really, really want it. We desire it. And we take it. If you've ever been on a diet, you understand how this works. You're doing so well, and then you go to the party and someone breaks out your favorite dessert the chocolate cake or the key lime pie, and you've done so well, but you see it, you really desire it, and you think, I'm okay being fat, (laughs) and I take it. And how about seconds, since we're here? Sin and temptation work exactly the same way, and here's the issue, here's the problem. The reason that God gives us commands, every thou shalt and thou shalt not in the Bible is for our protection. And listen to me. You may think it will never happen to you. If it could happen to David, it could happen to any of us. David was a righteous man who loved the Lord with with incredible passion. And yet David did not have the right guardrails up. And David went deep headfirst into major, major sin that later destroyed his life. So how do we prevent this from happening? How do we have strong guardrails in our lives? You'll find this on your message map. There are five things on here. Number one, know your weaknesses. Know your weaknesses. Know your triggers. Uh, An alcoholic does not need to spend time in the bar because they know that that is a weakness. Know the things that will set you off. Avoid those things that are most tempting for you. When I was in my 20s, I lived in Charlotte, North Carolina. And uh, for a period of time, I was single and I was living alone. I had a condo there in that city. And this was in the early 2000s. And when I lived there, I made the decision 
that I was not going to have internet service at my house. I had it in my office, so if I needed to do banking or anything else online, I could do it there. But when, when I was home alone, I did not have access to the internet. And for all of you millennials, this was before smartphones. So I really had literally no access to the internet. The funny thing was I had a computer there in my condo. And so friends would come over and they'd say, hey, um, can I get on your computer and check your email? Nope. Or check my email. Nope, you can't. Why not? I don't have internet. You don't have internet. Everybody has internet. I don't have internet. Really? Or they'd come over and they'd say, hey, let's go see a movie. Okay. Hey, let's find out what time the movie's playing or Check, you know, check the, uh, what theaters the movie we're going to see. Hey, let's get online and find that out. Nope. <laughs> we can't do that. What are we going to do? Dial 555 film. You can listen to the recording. <laughs> find out what time the movie's playing. Just chose not to have internet. Now, now, you may think, well, oh, you know, that's a very righteous decision to make. Listen, I made that decision because I know my weaknesses. And I understand that for a single guy in his 20s, that was the best decision for me at the time. In fact, the only reason I got internet was I got married and Katie said, we are going to move up to the modern age and we are going to have internet in our house. But before that, I just didn't have internet. Know your weaknesses. You want strong guardrails to protect your life. The first thing is to know your weaknesses. Second thing is to stay close to the Lord. David, in the months, maybe even years leading up to this instance, had drifted in his relationship from the Lord. He had drifted away. He did not have the passion that he had had previously. He was not passionately pursuing the Lord like he had before. In every case that I know of where someone's life just blows up, from some major sin, in every case that I've ever heard of where I've been involved in talking with these individuals, not one of them has ever said, let me tell you, I was on fire for the Lord. I was passionately pursuing God, and then I made this choice. Not one time have I heard that. In fact, the opposite is true. They will say, you know, I, I began to drift. I wasn't reading my Bible wasn't having a quiet time, wasn't praying, got out of church. You know, I began to drift. And then this temptation came along and I fell into it. Know your weaknesses. Secondly, stay close to the Lord. Number three, stay off the island. When you read the story of David, you find out that because he was king, no one could question David. No one could say to David, hey, She's a married woman. You're not supposed to do that. No, David, if you do this, I'm going to tell the police. No, David, I'm going to tell you right. No one ever questioned David because David was on an island. When we isolate ourselves, we open ourselves up to temptation and sin. It's one of the reasons at Northway Church, we push small groups big time. We call them home teams. And we say to you, get into a home team, get into a home team, get into a home team. Not just so we can have higher numbers of people in home teams, but because we believe that in the context of a community of other believers, you will help protect yourself from temptation and sin. You'll have others in your life who can say to you, hey, you've been up on that roof recently? <laughs> Been up there checking out the courtyards. Maybe you shouldn't do that. 
Hey, where's this going to lead? Watch out. You have others to hold you accountable and to encourage you in this race of life we call the Christian life. Know your weaknesses. Stay close to the Lord. Stay off the island. And number four, look for exit ramps. When temptation comes, when there is a sin that is before you, I believe that God is gracious and will always provide exit ramps. You see that in this story. David goes up on top of the roof and he looks and there's this beautiful woman bathing in a courtyard below him. Exit ramp number one was just turn around and go back down into the palace. He easily could have just left the situation. Then he inquires about her. Hey, there's this woman in that courtyard. Yeah, go three houses down. Go to the right. You'll know she is beautiful. You'll know exactly who to go find out the 411 on her and come back and report it to me. Oh, David, she's, she's married. Married? Woo! Warning, exit ramp. David, you, right, up, right then, you could have gotten out of that situation. Have this affair. Uh, she comes back pregnant. Uriah comes home, here's how I'll cover it up, and Uriah won't go home and be with his wife. That was God providing another exit ramp. Hey, David, just confess your sin. Just own up to it. Just tell people what you have done, own up to it, and then ask for forgiveness and move on from it. But David doesn't do that. Every time God offered an exit ramp, he continued to go further and further down the path of sin. A number of years ago, there was a well-known pastor who ended up having an extramarital affair. Uh, His life blew up as a result. His marriage fell apart. His family fell apart. He lost his job. It became well-known that that he had this brief affair, and and everything just fell apart for him. A guy named Bob Record, uh, who is a former pastor and denominational leader, had a conversation with him about how that affair happened and what led to it, and then he later recounted that conversation. And here's what Bob Records said. I just had to ask him why, Records said. Did he not hear the alarms ringing? Had he not heard God's warning of what was happening? My friend's response came after a long moment of silence. Yes, Bob, I heard the alarm, but I decided to disconnect the wires. When God gives you an alarm, don't disconnect the wires. Do not ignore God's exit ramps. So, know your weaknesses, stay close to the Lord, stay off the island, look for exit ramps, and finally, consider the cost. Consider the cost because the pleasure of sin is never worth the pain that it will later cause. What it will cost you is always, always greater than the enjoyment of the sin. You see, for Eve, she saw this fruit, and it was desirable, and she took it, and she ate it, and she had the brief pleasure of this fruit, but it cost her paradise. David saw this beautiful woman, and he desired her, And he took her, and he had this brief pleasure of a one-night stand. But it cost him, you'll have to come back next week, to hear what it cost David. 